So we're still in our Carol sermon series where we're going behind the origins of some of these classic songs. The one we're doing today is Mary Did You Know. Mark Lowry, the writer of Mary Did You Know, is one of the most interesting characters in gospel music. He is a singer, songwriter, and comedian. Mark might best be described as Hammy, the hyperactive squirrel in the movie In Over the Hedge. Mark has the energy of three fifth graders and the curiosity of a dozen preschoolers. Unfortunately, his school teachers saw his problems more than his potential. Even though Mark was singing solos in the grade school choir by four or five years old and got the lead part in the Easter musical at the age of eight, most people still simply saw a hyperactive, non-athletic, out-of-control tornado. Mark's parents believed that God had a plan for his life and that his unique personality was part of it. Since performing was one of the few places he could focus his attention and burn his anger, they allowed him to get on stage every chance he could. By age 15, he had sung in front of tens of thousands of gospel music fans and with the London Symphony Orchestra. Mark wrote Mary Did You Know when his pastor asked him to write the transitions for a Christmas music choir production. Mark imagined sitting across from Mary, interviewing her on what it was like to be the mother of Jesus. Since its release in 1991, dozens of other famous artists have recorded the song, and no other Christmas song written in the past 30 years has produced a response quite like Mary Did You Know has. Mark's energy and curiosity could have held him back in so many ways, and he could have been forced to conform to everyone else. Yet, his parents saw his problems as potential, causing one of the world's most familiar stories to be thrust into a brilliant new light.
Good morning. Um, I'd like to share a scripture reading this morning from Luke chapter 1, verses 26 to 55. Before I do that, would you pray with me? Heavenly Father, I just thank you so much for um, the beauty of the service this morning and um, your Christmas carols. Lord, I pray that you would speak to each of us through your holy word this morning. In your son's name we pray, amen. In the sixth month of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, to a virgin pledged to be married to a man named Joseph, a descendant of David. The virgin's name was Mary. The angel went to her and said, Greetings, you who are highly favored. The Lord is with you. Mary was greatly troubled at his words and wondered what kind of greeting this might be. But the angel said to her, do not be afraid, Mary. You have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son, and you are to call him Jesus. He will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his father David, and he will reign over Jacob's descendants forever. His kingdom will never end. How will this be, Mary asked the angel, since I am a virgin? The angel answered, the Holy Spirit will come on you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. So the Holy One to be born will be called the Son of God. Even Elizabeth, your relative, is going to have a child in her old age. And she who was said to be unable to conceive is in her sixth month. For no word from God will ever fail. I am the Lord's servant, Mary answered. May your word to me be fulfilled. Then the angel left her. At that time, Mary got ready and hurried to a town in the hill country of Judea, where she entered Zechariah's home and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greeting, the baby leaped in her womb, and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit. In a loud voice, she exclaimed, Blessed are you among women, and blessed is the child you will bear. But why am I so favored that the mother of my Lord should come to me? As soon as the sound of your greeting reached my ears, the baby in my womb leaped for joy. Blessed is she who has believed that the Lord would fulfill his promises to her. And Mary said, My soul glorifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has been mindful of the humble, servant, humble state of his servant. From now on, all generations will call me blessed, for the Mighty One has done great things for me. Holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds with his arm. He has scattered those who are proud in their inmost thoughts. He has brought down rulers from their thrones, but has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things, but has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants forever, just as he promised our ancestors. Well, good morning, everybody. I saw the Exodus leave the first two rows during that uh, kid's dismissal, and I was like, oh, the joy on their faces is amazing. But if you really know that scripture, then 
you're, you should have some joy on your face because there is um, so much going on in what we just read. I mean, when we really think about the breadth of Scripture, we don't know too much about Mary. I mean, yes, we know she's the mother of Jesus, but I think church in history has given us much more about Mary than even Mary might want to know for us to know. Like, some say she was without sin. Others say that we can pray to Mary as if she's this co-mediator with Christ between God and us. And with the exception of the hipster nativity set, which shows Mary doing a duck face selfie, um, she's always portrayed in this like calm, peaceful, and perfect way. In fact, I, th- I thought, oh, here's, here's a good piece of art that, that shows a typical Mary. I mean, you always see her in the best angle. Uh, she's always got the appropriate amount of light shining on her. I mean, really, if she would be around today, think about it, she would dominate Instagram, right? Okay, I guess so. All right. Well, you know, I try. The problem is that the nativity scenes don't give us a very accurate view of what's happening in Mary's life, especially during and before the time of Jesus' birth. I mean, the reality around Mary is that she's young, probably between 12 and 15 years old. So if your nativity set has Mary looking like she's in her mid to late 30s, uh, pull out your 8th or ninth grade yearbook picture or your sister's or your friend's, you know. That's more likely what she looked like. Uh, not only that, she was scandalized. I think she had to be. Think about it. An angel appears and tells her that uh, she's going to give birth to the Savior of the world, and he's going to be called the Son of God, and the pregnancy is going to happen in this really unusual way. And the only other people who know that are the people who hear from this angelic messenger. So unless you're hearing this message from the angel, it's probably going to be a far-fetched tale. So she's young, she's scandalized. I think she would have been labeled at risk. After the angel appears to Joseph, he does agree to stay engaged to her, at least in secret. Um, But I'm sure that didn't slow down town gossip. Think about if we would have had social media back then. How many people would have unfriended her or cyberbullied her? And Jesus is born in a cave or a barn on the ground without modern medicine or medical assistance. So I remember the first child that we had, my wife was like, I'm going to do this naturally. And like she's in labor all day. And it was one of those mornings where it was like 6.30 in the morning. She's like, okay, I think today's the day. I'm like, yeah, I'll start timing the contractions. Four minutes, five minutes, or four and a half minutes. And okay. Then we went to the hospital at about 11 and they're like, yeah, go home. And so, you know, four minutes, three minutes, five minutes, three minutes. Let's go back to the hospital. And they're like, well, maybe. And so, anyways, at 6 o'clock, it got a little bit stronger. At 7, she's like, oh, I think I want to take a bath. So she gets in the tub, and then she's like, okay, this is, this is painful now. And so by 8 o'clock, she's out of the tub. By 8.30, she's like, give me the epidural. She might have had a, a, an extra word <laughs> in front of that, um, which will just stay in the room today since she's not here. Uh, but 
by that time, it was already past the time that she could have it. It was an excruciating, excruciating experience that obviously I was there, so I know. Um, she squeezed my arm really hard, so I do know. <laughs> no, men never say that. Um, my point being, like, not fun. So if our nativities make Mary seem perfect, it's more likely that she's a hot mess. Except the Bible doesn't call her a hot mess. The Bible actually calls her highly favored. So why is that? And is there some way that we can receive that favor from God? That's what we want to take a look at for a few minutes today. So according to Luke, or the writer of Luke, this angel Gabriel is sent from God to a young woman, a virgin named Mary, who says, Rejoice, favored one, God is with you. And if we would have started at the beginning of Luke, then we would have known already that Gabriel is an angel who stands in the presence of God, whose name means strength of God, who's already brought good news to Mary's older relatives, Elizabeth and Zechariah, that even in their old age, they will bring new life into the world who will prepare the way for the Lord to come. So we will hear that, but if we're Mary, we don't know that yet. We probably know, if we're Mary, because we listen at synagogue or church, that God has not spoken through angels or prophets for 400 years. That in the last, say, 100 years before Mary, maybe 150, there's been lots of talk of messiahs, deliverers, saviors, people who will come in and say they're going to deliver the people, but every one of them, the rebellion's been squelched, people have been knocked down, and so this talk of Messiah is ripe, but yet none of it's from God, which might be why she's upset and troubled, but it also might be where she lives. Remember when Deanne said that in the six months of Elizabeth's pregnancy, God sent the angel Gabriel to Nazareth, a town in Galilee, which is in the north, which would be part of the region of Samaria, which would be the place that rebelled against God first, the place that was left and scattered, and the people of Jerusalem and Judea actually despise. Jesus had a follower who said, Nazareth, when he learned where Jesus was from. Can anything good come from Nazareth? Mary's probably heard that her whole life. I think it's safe to say that she's a little confused or upset or puzzled because she believes nothing good can come from Nazareth. So why would this angel come to her and bring good news? But I think it's also because, really, Mary's poor. She's unknown. She's young. She's a woman. All things that would say in her society that she's overlooked, not highly favored. And when I listen to my friends who've adopted and they tell me about the process of adoption, I have to believe that God is thinking along the same lines, at least in some level, that his one and only son is going to a family. Certainly he's going to think awfully hard about who gets them. He might do some things that you know, adoption agencies do, like investigate their financial status or inquire of their family background, or consider their mental health, their physical health, the marriage status and health, and, and, and how these people plan to influence this child. Well, 
Forbes magazine actually in May of this year just did uh, the most powerful or influential people of the world. It was in May of this year. And the article started with this. There are 7.5 billion people in the world. These are the 75 that matter. Nice. And filling the list was Vladimir Putin, Donald Trump, Angela Merkel, I believe she's the Chancellor of Germany, um, Jeff Bezos, Amazon, and Pope Francis, and the um, Counselor or Chancellor of China, whose name I can't pronounce. But how they figured it out is they based their, their decision on four dimensions. One, how many people does the person have power over? Two, how much financial resources do they control? Three, does the person have influence in more than one sphere or arena? It's not great enough to just have influence in Amazon or the church. It's got to go beyond that. And then four, how often does the person wield their power? And maybe your mind's going, oh, now I see how so-and-so made the list. But if we compare that to Mary, Mary has no power. Mary really has no authority. Joseph, her soon-to-be husband, is from a line of kings, but will never be king. He's a blue-collar tradesman worker. And they have very little financial resources. Remember when Mary and Joseph, if you know the story, when Jesus was born, they went to the temple to sacrifice an offering so that they could dedicate him to the Lord. And the law required a perfect sacrificial lamb or two young birds if they couldn't afford a lamb. The one who is our perfect lamb couldn't afford a lamb. They could only afford the pigeons or the the doves. And yet we read that Mary's highly favored and that God was with her. So Forbes had a list back then of who was highly favored. I'm pretty sure Mary wouldn't be on it. But if God had a list of who was influential or favored, Mary would top that list. Certainly, uh, I think truthfulness, integrity, Faithfulness could all make that list, and maybe you have some words that you're like, yeah, I I think this should be on it. I would say that the number one quality for receiving God's favor might be humility. In fact, I would even go so far as to say humility actually prepares the way for God's favor in your life. And Mary possessed a humble spirit. Mary had this keen awareness of who she was, and how small she was, and who God was, or is, and how big he is. Now, uh, maybe you're like, mm, preparing the way for, you know, humility prepares the way for God's favor in your life. You might be going a little too far. All right, well, there's lots of places in the Bible that agree with this. Uh, like Proverbs 3:34 says that the Lord mocks proud mockers, but shows favor to the humble and the oppressed. Or Isaiah 66, verse 2 says, Has not my hand made all these things, and so they came into being, declares the Lord. These are the ones I look on with favor, those who are humble and contrite in spirit, those who tremble at my word. Or Micah 6, 8, He has shown you, O mortal, what is good, and what does the Lord require of you? 
to act justly, and to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. That's just in the Old Testament. In the New Testament, we find in Matthew 18 that Jesus compares a low position of a child to the greatest in the kingdom, another example of humility. Or in Luke 14, 11, those who exalt themselves will be humbled, but those who humble themselves will be exalted. Or James 4.10, who says almost the same, if we humble ourselves before the Lord, he will lift us up. So humility is not just an attribute of God and not just an example of a way to favor. I think humility is also an attribute of people who had God's favor, Mary being one, but I think one of the biggest examples is Moses. Moses had God's favor, and in Numbers 12.3 it says, Moses was very humble, more humble than any other person on earth. And if you read it in your scripture, you'll actually see that this particular verse is in parentheses. Now, the reason that it's there is because the translators believe that Moses wrote Exodus, Numbers, Leviticus, Deuteronomy. And so if Moses would have been the one writing it, and yet he wrote that he was the most humble man on earth, it sort of negate that. So I think that also points to the challenge of humility. Like, even if we agree that it's this essential quality that God has and that would lead us to favor with him, nobody really wants to develop it. So there's still bookstores in the world, like one's still called Barnes & Noble. It's over in Burnsville. And if you go there, you could check out a huge self-help section. Go look to see if there's anything about humility in it. I mean, they're just not there. And I think also humility can be confused with niceness. Oh, I don't want to talk about myself. Oh, I'll, I'll just be nice, especially in Minnesota. So consider Minnesota nice versus what I like to call Minnesota warm. Minnesota nice is giving the coat or the sweater off your back to someone who's freezing. I think a bunch of people in this room would do that. Minnesota warm is actually taking that person to a restaurant and buying them hot chocolate or coffee and hearing their story. Minnesota nice would be shoveling out your neighbor or the stranger who gets stuck near your house, but Minnesota warm would be inviting them in for dinner. Minnesota nice would be smiling and greeting someone in, you know, in your best Minnesotan accent, hey, how you doing? But Minnesota warm would actually be smiling and stopping and asking them, how are you doing? See, the rest of the country actually says that Minnesota nice is a little bit Minnesota ice. We're, we're kind and generous, but we keep people at an arm's length. We can't confuse humility with niceness. So if humility is what prepares the way for God's favor, how do we grow in it? I think we can look at Mary, who shows us that she knew who she was. If we want to grow in our humility, we can know who we are, truly who we are. To think about that, you'd have to think about, in my day and in my week, how often am I focused on what I have to do and what I've done and my accomplishments and, and my, my work at home or at work? Like, And when I think about what I have, do I think about the reason I have it is because of how hard I've worked? Or 
if I made the team because I put in the off-season prep, or I helped my friends because I saw that they were having a problem and I persuaded them to meet and saw that reconciliation happen. I'm awesome. But we can't work or train or argue our way to God's favor. It's not like we can hand God a resume that says, here's my status, here's my merit, here's my moral goodness. Can I receive your favor, God? Because favor in the scriptures in grace are actually the same word. And God's grace is a gift that he gives. We can't earn it. We can't make ourselves good enough to get it. It's just his to give. So I think some of us then go the other way, and then we never focus on our efforts. We just think about others, especially when they praise us, or others when they blame us, or probably the thing that's hardest for me is, oh gosh, I wonder who I've disappointed today or this week. But all those things actually still point to pride because they're turned right back on us. I've heard humility described as not thinking less of yourself, but simply thinking of yourself less. Pride says I can do it on my own. And pride can so quickly infiltrate our souls at this time of year. Think about it. Pride says, go ahead and buy that thing. You can pay it off later. Number, like the number one person on Cyber Monday to shop for? Anybody know? Yourself. Yep. Pride says, go ahead and take that drink because you're strong enough now. Or go ahead and look at that image. You can stop at just one. Pride says, it's your spouse's fault or your parents' fault or your friend's fault. They're supposed to know what you need. And pride says, probably the biggest one in the holidays, I'm not going to apologize for what happened last year. If they want it to be awkward, it'll just be awkward. If they don't, then they'll have to come to me. But humility says, I need help. I can't do it on my own. Humility says, my family's a mess and I've blown it with whoever, my kids, my parents, my wife, my husband. I can't fix it on my own. God, I need your wisdom. Humility says, God, I can't manage my employees without your leadership. Would you lead me? Humility says, uh, my marriage really isn't a bunch of broken pieces. I can't fake it or fix it on my own. But God, you can restore anything. Or, God, I've made so many mistakes. My past is a mess. I don't even, people have given up on me. But I believe you never give up on me and you can heal. You can make all things new. Humility says, I have nothing to offer compared to you, God. But whatever I do have, God, I give to you. I think humility really does prepare the way for God's favor in our lives. And I think Mary helps us with this because Mary not only understands who she really is, she also understands who God really is. That's the second way we can grow in our humility is to know who God really is, to see who he is and how great he is. Mary does this. When the angel says to Mary that there's going to be a seed of future life that's going to be growing in you, that's going to come out, you're going to give birth to this son who's going to be called the Lord is salvation or the Lord saves. 
And he'll be called, not only that, he'll be called the son of the Most High. He'll be given a throne of his ancestor David. He'll reign over Jacob's descendants forever, and his kingdom will never end. All things that would be very significant to a person in Mary's life, in Mary's religion. She simply responds with, how will this be? She doesn't need to know for certain how it will be like Zechariah, nor does she get distracted thinking, oh my gosh, if I'm going to give birth to the Son of the Most High, like that's going to be pretty special. I think I'm going to be great. I mean, she doesn't get distracted by that. When the angel explains this and explains the sign of even your older, barren relative, Elizabeth, who's been disgraced all these years because she can't have children, is now pregnant herself. Because anything God says will certainly come to pass. Mary doesn't balk at that statement. She says, yes, without any conditions. It's trust, it's willingness, it's obedience. I am the Lord's servant, Luke 1.38. May it be, may your word to me be fulfilled. The Lord's servant actually there is the word bondservant, which is more like a slave or a willing slave for life. It, it simply means that who am I to question who God is and what he says? That's how much she trusts God. And as much as I think that's beautiful, if I'm honest, I have way more pride than that. I don't want to say that. There's little parts that I want to control. And people that I want to have influence over because I think about, oh, I can do some good stuff, God. You've given me a lot of, you know, a lot of talent up here and more here than, than here. But Mary says, no, I realize who I am, but I realize who you are, God. She says, complete. I belong to you, God, in my mind, in my body, in my spirit. How many of us can say that? And if you think I'm making a little too much of this humility piece, notice that when Mary does travel to go see Elizabeth to see this sign that God told her about, Mary comes and lavishes all these praise on her that's, you know, a little awkward, like, oh, how am I so honored that the mother of my Lord would visit me? Or when I heard the greeting, my baby leapt in my womb. She responds by turning that praise back to God. My soul glorifies the Lord. My spirit rejoices in God, my Savior. She could have responded with, I know, right? Or like, "Mm, thanks, I am blessed. Or, you know, she could have, you better believe it. But, and I just think it's kind of fun if we, for a moment, You know, think about if Facebook would have been around because, you know, there are some parents who really like to post about their children, right? You know, some of which you've just said, turn off notifications forever, but until their kid turns 18. I wish there was a setting for that. I'm sure one of Mary's friends would have posted like, so proud of Samuel for making the lead in the school play. Of course, Mary could have been like, so proud of Jesus for walking on water today. Or, you know, like, you know, my, my daughter Hannah was the school helper. Mary could have posted like, 
Mm, so proud of Jesus. You know, when Hannah fell off the slide and broke her leg, Jesus healed it. <laughs> or this is my favorite. Maybe you've seen this cartoon before. Oh, if it isn't Mary and Joseph. Our son is an honor student. Our son is a medical school. Our son is God. That'd be an awesome sticker, right? I mean, it's kind of fun because if we're honest, I think humility and pride are things that affect our lives every day that really we'd rather poke some fun at than actually turn and think about where we're at. See, if humility prepares the way for God's favor in our life, then pride blocks it. Beth Moore writes a poignant poem about pride that I want to share as we start to close. My name is Pride, and I'm a cheater. I cheat you out of your God-given destiny because you demand your own way. I cheat you out of contentment because you deserve better than this. I cheat you of knowledge because you already know it all. I cheat you of healing because you are too full of you to forgive. I cheat you of holiness because you refuse to admit when you're wrong. I cheat you of vision because you'd rather look in the mirror than out the window. I cheat you of genuine friendship because no one's going to know the real you. I cheat you of love because real romance demands sacrifice. I cheat you of greatness in heaven because you refuse to wash another's feet on earth. I cheat you of God's glory because I convinced you to seek your own glory. My name is Pride, and I am a cheater. You like me because you think I'm always looking out for you, but that is not true. I'm actually looking to make a fool of you. Don't worry, God has so much for you. If you just stick with me, you'll never know. There's one time that Mary mentions where she's at and who she is in her song that she sings that should remind us of when Hannah sang a song when God gave her the son Samuel. She says, For he has been mindful of the humble state of his servant. One time she talks about herself, but a dozen times she talks about who God is. And what he has done. The mighty one has done great things. His holy is his name. His mercy extends to those who fear him from generation to generation. He has performed mighty deeds. He has scattered those who are proud. He has brought down rulers from thrones. He has lifted up the humble. He has filled the hungry with good things. He has sent the rich away empty. He has helped his servant Israel, remembering to be merciful to Abraham and his descendants, just as he promised. Mary had no holy or heavenly position, yet she became this huge player in God's story simply because she was humble enough to experience the grace and favor of God. 
which caused her to believe with all her heart the word of God and surrender her body and her soul and her life to the spirit of God to accomplish the will of God to carry the son of God. Now, I don't think God is going to actually ask any one of us to carry the Son of God into his second coming. But if we know Jesus, then we have the Son of God. We have the Spirit of God in us, and we can bring him forth into the world in a very similar way, I would say. If we stop and consider where we truly need him. A couple years ago, I was at a concert, and the concert, like, had a, the band had a spokesperson, and the spokesperson said, there's this app called If714. It says, an urgent call for revival. It's time. So for the last two years, I've had this go off at 7 in the morning, 7.14 a.m. and 7.14 p.m. And I can say, honestly, that about half the time, unfortunately not all the time, but about half the time, I read it and I pray it. And it gives me a connection with God every time I do it. No matter where I've been in my day, and my days are a lot of times filled like your days, where it's easy to get focused on what I'm doing and forget that God is in the midst of it. 7.14 comes from Second Chronicles 7.14 which says, if my people who are called by my name will humble themselves and pray and seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, then I will hear from heaven and forgive their sin and heal their land. That can be our prayer. Because truly, I believe you're never too small for God to use you, but it is possible to be too big for God to use you. Maybe there's something you are missing out on. And I know it's true in my life. But maybe there's something that you are missing out on because you are not letting him lead. Would you pray with me? God, you are a good father like we sang a half hour ago. And God, you do call us by name and you do love us, and you love us so much that you sent your one and only son to us. And you didn't send him to a couple that had this distinguished resume, the couple that would provide for them in every way that we could think we would need to be provided for. God, you provided people who you saw as highly favored. People would guide and nurture and love and care for, and, and lead towards you, who would willingly let go so that you could receive him again. God, we are called to humble ourselves. And we confess that we have not sought your face, that instead we've been seeking other things or other people or really other gods that we think will fulfill us or give us power or give us significance, God, and we need to turn from those things. Give us the sight to recognize where it is that we think will fulfill us, that we think will give us power, that we think will give us significance, that the things that we say, if only if or as soon as I have, then I will. God, those are not our gods. They are idols and we reject them. We turn 
from those things. God, we turn towards you. We seek your face. Like this song, Mary, did you know, God, when we look at the face of Jesus, we can see your face. When we can see what Jesus has done, we can see what you've done. God, help us to turn from our wicked, our sinful, or our selfish ways. To take our eyes off ourselves, or even our situation, good or bad, and turn them to you. Because you promise that you will hear from heaven. You promise that you will forgive our sin. You promise that you will heal our land and our bodies. And we know, Jesus, that you made the blind see, you made the deaf hear, you made the dead live. So God, you can do this. You are the Lord of all creation. You do rule, and one day you will rule everything. God, help us to bend a knee long before we're forced to bend a knee. God, I just want to take a moment because I believe there are some of us here that are like Mary. God, we want to believe the impossible. We want to be willing, but we might be asking how. Not with certainty, just with simplicity. How? I've been in such a dark place, God. How could you do this? God, I've been following and not hearing. How could this be true? God, I've been wanting for so long or believing that, that I'm never going to be or that you would never speak to. How? God, there are others who I think are like Elizabeth. Elizabeth, this relative, was disgraced and then you brought grace to her. But she had long given up on bringing forth new life into the world. And regardless of physical babies, God, there are people here that have long since stopped believing that they will bring forth anything new, anything good, anything life-giving. God, and this, this story tells us that you are the one who brings forth new things, and you can put them in anyone, anywhere, at any time. So maybe, may we be people who believe and ask for that. Men, women, young, old, rich or poor. God, may we believe that you will bring forth new things in us, a new life in us, that we will bring forth grace and favor, not for ourselves, but for you, for your glory, God, your goodness. God, we call upon your favor. We call upon your healing. We call to confess and ask for you to see our face for you to forgive our sin, for you to heal us. May you lead us this Advent into action and life.